New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Units. I'm Allison Wilmore. I'm mad seeing on Whoa, Matt, how did you do that with your voice? Do what with my voice? Um, nothing. By the way, I, I love what you've done with this room. Yes, I thought red drapes everywhere really set off the feeling that we're trapped in eternal purgatory here forever. Hmm, well, later in the show, who knows when that will be, <laughs> we'll bring you cue shots where we recommend some movies you can uh, rent or stream at home right now, all with a common theme. And inspired by Twin Peaks, Fire Walk With Me, we were going to do other movies about people walking with fire, Firestarter, Fantastic Four, Backdraft, so on. Or at least that was Matt's suggestion before he actually watched Twin Peaks, Fire Walk With Me, at which point I had to point out that the title is not meant literally in the movie. I knew that. Mostly. But after I confirmed it by watching Twin Peaks Firewalk with me, we decided instead to talk about other movies that feature what's called the Pretty Dead Girl, popular culture that starts from or is centered around the idea of a dead, beautiful woman. But first up, let's do Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few titles that are new on demand. Allison, it's your turn to give us your picks. What do you have for us this time? Well, first up, available on demand on June 6th, is a movie that I enjoyed and was also, it also felt like a amazing accident that it was made by a major studio and released in theaters in in large release. That is A Cure for Wellness, Gore Verbinski's uh, psychological horror film slash health horror, if that's a, a, a genre sort of body horror, but it's also more specifically wellness horror, mm. uh, starring Dane DeHaan as a workaholic young uh, executive who gets sent from New York to this mysterious spa slash health center in the Swiss Alps, ostensibly to retrieve someone, an employee who has gone astray there, but then he gets tied up in this odd mystery, with lots of surreal imagery, mm-hmm. and eels oh no yes uh this this movie was a kind of i think you could call it a bomb it did not do well didn't do yeah certainly Uh, wasn't a hit but it also wasn't you know a 150 million dollar temple so i think it is worth it for seeing a bit of surreal seeing surreal touches in a movie that is such a wide release was Mm -hmm. kind of a pleasure it Mm -hmm. felt like a, a it wasn't maybe as weird as as some of the films that I feel have influenced it, but mm-hmm. it was still a good time. And, you know, eels. Uh, available now on demand is I, Daniel Blake, uh, Ken Loach's Palm Door winner at the Cannes Film Festival last year, and a very kind of like forthright fable about, uh, about benefits and about austerity in the UK, uh, starring Dave Johns as the title character who... After he is laid off for health reasons, he tries to go on uh, this disability allowance and then gets caught up in bureaucracy. So that is available now. 
And available on June 9th on demand is Band-Aid, a movie I've been really looking forward to seeing. Uh, This is written and directed by Zoe Lister-Jones, who is known for her acting. It is her directorial debut, and she actually made a point of featuring an all-female crew... Uh, including Hilary Spera as the cinematographer, someone we mentioned in the previous episode. And uh, she stars in the movie as well, alongside Adam Pally, uh, as a couple who attempt to save their marriage by turning their fights into musical numbers by starting a band. So that is Band-Aid, and it's available on demand on June 9th. Every episode of Film Spotting SVU features a review chosen by listeners via a poll on our website, filmspottingsvu.com. In honor of the return of Twin Peaks on Showtime, we gave you an all-David Lynch poll, The Elephant Man, The Straight Story, and Twin Peaks, Colon, Firewalk with me. And as I suspected, I imagine you probably predicted too, Allison, Twin Peaks was the winner with about 49% of the vote. Elephant Man came in second. Straight story was bringing up the rear, which I guess is going to happen when you're moving very slowly on a tractor. It only really makes sense. All right, so Twin Peaks, Fire Walk With Me. The film famously premiered at the 1992 Cannes Film Festival to boos and jeers and all sorts of other negative noises. Uh, the film came out about a year after the cancellation of the Twin Peaks television series, which became a sensation in its first season. Uh, about the inhabitants of a strange town in the Pacific Northwest, only to swiftly decline in viewership and popularity in its second season after the resolution of its central mystery, that would be Who Killed Homecoming Queen Laura Palmer, and its gradual addition of more and more spooky and surreal supernatural elements. After the show was canceled, Lynch, who created the series with Mark Frost, decided he wasn't done with Twin Peaks or the character of Laura Palmer, and so he quickly rounded up the cast one more time and some financing and made Fire Walk With Me, which is a prequel set before the series, and it follows Laura Palmer while she's still alive, played by Cheryl Lee, specifically in the final days of her life before her murder. It features many of the show's most memorable characters, including Laura's dad, Leland, played by Ray Wise, but the show's main character, Kyle MacLachlan's agent Dale Cooper only plays a minor role in the film supposedly because he was angry about how Lynch had kind of walked out on the show in its second season I've read other things about how he was worried about being typecast so his part is small so small in fact that Lynch had to essentially create a very obvious Dale Cooper substitute Agent Chester Desmond, played by Chris Isaac, of all people, (laughs) who investigates a similar murder a year prior to Laura's death, basically the first couple of scenes of the movie. For hardcore Twin Peaks fans, Fire Walk With Me builds on what they already know. There's not much mystery here, at least insofar as Laura's death is concerned, but those are the hardcore fans. Uh, Allison, I don't think you're a hardcore Twin Peaks fan. No, I wouldn't call myself hardcore by no. any means. Uh, even though you, like me, do enjoy David Lynch's work. Yes. So my question to you is, would you recommend this movie to people outside the cult of Twin Peaks? Does this movie have value as a standalone work of art? Or is it really something that should only be watched after you've seen and loved and obsessed over the first two seasons of Twin Peaks? Ooh, that is a tough question because it's really difficult to try and get at this film for me 
outside of the kind of base of knowledge I already have of Twin Peaks. It's hard for me to imagine it as if you were just to walk into a theater with no knowledge of who these characters were, what you would think of it. That said, I feel like there are a lot of qualities of this film and how inexplicable it might be to you as a a kind of novice viewer are also just as inexplicable as someone who's watched a lot of Twin Peaks. I mean, the the idea that it starts off, and it's not just the first few scenes. It goes on for a while. It's probably like 20 minutes. two characters who, even if you had seen the whole series, you have no idea who they are. And it's, it's such like this kind of odd, like introduction that just meanders for a while but you have no idea who this person whose murder they're investigating is you have no idea who these two people are other than that you understand they're tied to the fbi it's so odd it's such an odd way to start a movie and it is such a david lynch way to start a movie i think that for every part of this that seems i mean and not even like uh making a quality judgment here for every part of this that seems i think inexplicable I think about like Inland Empire and I don't know that Firewalk With Me is any, it's really more coherent, I would say still than like Inland Empire. So I, I don't know that this is a place that I would recommend that you start with Twin Peaks. I still think it, it, it has a lot more value seen on top of at least the first season, (laughs) but I don't think it's all that weird on the scale of Lynch honestly not compared to considering what he did later or even considering what he is doing now mm-hmm. on the showtime series mm-hmm. but you matt singer yeah you are not you have not seen much of twin peaks correct uh so you were going into this having a very rough idea of who some of these characters are very rough i have a feeling where this will go but what were your experiences <laughs> watching this the bafflement a lot of bafflement a pleasurable bafflement but um, I did stop the movie like 20 minutes in and go read like the plot description on Wikipedia because like I have no idea what's going on. I'm but, totally then, lost. But then you're like, wait. These characters they, aren't from the show? From the okay. Show anyway. I mean, like, obviously I know who Laura Palmer is. I know who Dale Cooper is. I even knew, even though I haven't seen, I've only seen like the first, I don't know, five episodes, something like that. I knew who killed Laura Palmer. Like that part wasn't a secret to me, but they're like, and I sort of know what the Red Room is and the Black Lodge and all these things. But even with that, like... There's a lot that was confusing, and and Lara Flynn Boyle isn't in it. They have like she's like one of them. Like they, her character is in it, right. but they have another actress. She refused to come back. She didn't want to come back, so they just like, but they needed her character, so they replaced her Moira with another Maura Kelly. Yeah. So yeah, so that was a little confusing, and yeah, Kyle MacLachlan is like barely in it, and Chris Isaac's wandering around, and. Yeah, I found it a little a little hard to follow. I sort of enjoyed a lot of it, even though I didn't know what was going on. And it's it's you know it's David Lynch and it's beautiful and strange, and you kind of enjoy just going along for the ride. But uh, I don't know that I would tell someone to watch this. Like, even though it's a prequel, that's sort of the funny thing about it is it's like it's a prequel that only makes sense after the fact. Like most prequels, I think whether they succeed or fail, they are designed to be relatively understandable to someone who hasn't seen the movies that they're prequeling. Now, there may be in-jokes or Easter eggs or whatever, but they're they're designed to be, you know, understandable. I mean, that's part of the point, is like, instead of making another sequel, you go back in time where there's less continuity. Like, no. David Lynch is like, no, that's not how I do things. I make it more baffling, more confusing, and... 
I, I don't think he really cared too much. Like, I, I feels very much like he was interested in what he was interested in, and he didn't really care if anyone else was along for the ride at all. Well, it literally starts with the credits rolling on a television that gets smashed. Like, if that's not a gesture. Oh, was that towards... a symbol? <laughs> His feelings about letting go of the kind of structures of the television series. Mm-hmm. I, I will say, it is funny that Twin Peaks is back now, because... Mm-hmm. You know, it was such this like exciting anomaly on network television when it was first playing, and that's yeah. part of the reason it has such a great reputation. It was yes. so nothing, not like anything else on TV. Yes, and it offered this like these like ri- this rich mystery, this serialization, sense of mystery. right? Rich but mystery, also, weirdness, but but adult it themes. offered this mystery that like clearly everyone involved did not have planned out in no. any way, and that people you know would then obsess over and give readings to, and and. It's funny in the day and the era of obsessive continuity and obsessive, like, puzzling out of what symbols mean what. Like, Twin Peaks coming back. Twin Peaks is, like, exactly the wrong sort of mystery for how we watch TV now and puzzle out TV now. Yes. Uh, So I I have been watching the new Showtime series and I've been enjoying it. Mm -hmm. And it's, like, total, it's even more baffling. But I, I think, like, watching this now, maybe my tolerance for how baffling it is is, like, really high. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is a series that asks you to engage with a character who has been mostly seen in flashbacks across the series. What did you think of this, like, uh, you know, taking the dead girl and then giving her life again? It's I, I a sad was, life. I thought that was sort of an interesting, um, interesting idea for the movie was to sort of take this character who I guess I'm assuming we saw not only in flashbacks, but probably in that red room as well. Right. Doesn't she yeah, sort of a ghost in a sense? You'd see her sometimes in the red room. You'd see her in flashbacks. And you also saw uh, Cheryl Lee playing her cousin, Maddie. Oh, it's like a soap opera, right? Right. Like Twin Peaks. So in a very soap operatic fashion, she, oh, she got an identical twin like, cousin, yeah, like brunette hair. You uh-huh. know? Yeah. I, I thought that was great. I mean, I don't, I don't know that I think Cheryl Lee is the greatest actress in the world. Um, and so some of the scenes where she's having sort of freakouts or being particularly emotional, I mean, maybe that was the style they were going for, because as you said, it's sort of, in some ways, it's a, an incredibly dry satire of soap operas. So maybe in a way that her performance is meant to sort of satirize bad soap opera acting. I don't know. I've never read anything about Lynch or her talking about it. Maybe that was it. I didn't think she was the most compelling uh, actress to watch for a feature length film personally um so that was sort of how i felt felt about it but i did think it was interesting to watch the character and this idea that we know that she's gonna die and that it's this sort of she's like a dead man walking essentially kind of thing i thought that was sort of interesting and certainly there were some sequences in this that are so bizarre and disturbing and crazy and weird and everything with is it bob is that the yeah bob killer bob bob is really disturbing and all the scenes like in her room it is really weird though because her bedroom is so like it's like an old lady's bedroom and at one point she's given uh it's like a photo to hang on the wall or a painting of like the doorway of her room which is like a really kind of wonderfully spooky bit of business. Yeah, I don't know what's. I mean, her house. I mean, just the just she just doesn't seem like a teenager, you know. And well, I, you know, I Cheryl know Lee is twenty five and does not look remotely like a teenager. No. And yeah, Laura does not act like a teenager in some ways that are deliberate, and other ways that just seem like a stylized, a little and odd. incongruous. Yeah, um, I will say, I I would agree. I don't I don't know that Cheryl Lee is like the world's 
greatest actress, but I think that there's something about her style that meshes really well mm-hmm. with the kind of whiplash sometimes emotional states that are required of this character. Yeah. I think a little bit of artificiality works for me in this because it requires her to go from like, you know, having like random sex in this club to seeing her friends and like reacting in horror, you know, right. like this, like not just like, I can't believe I did this, but like, massive outsized horror. And I think things like that, there's no way to do them in a way that seems natural. So, you know, that's probably fair. Yeah. But, uh, did you, did watching this make you have any interest in going back to Twin Peaks? Not especially. No, not really. I mean, in a way it's sort of a giant spoiler for a lot of things that I didn't, I vaguely knew, but didn't really know the details of. And so in in order to understand what I was looking at, I had to read up more about Twin Peaks, which I had generally avoided in case I ever did want to go through and watch the whole thing. So now I know a lot more about the mythology and the mystery and all that stuff. Um, and I did watch the first episode of the new show and, and thought it looked absolutely gorgeous. Like, that was one thing that I was relieved about because Inland Empire is such a sort of deliberately kind of grainy and this off-putting. This digital experiment, right? Yeah, and it no. just doesn't look very it's – not, it's not visually appealing, whereas the new Twin Peaks I thought looked gorgeous. Like, it captures kind of the look of the old show, but also, like, some of the scenes, like the scene in, the, in New York with that weird – the box and everything – just something really very frightening, frightening and also, but also beautiful. Like it looks glossy and beautiful and it's appealing to just like watch, um, as an object. And, and, and this is, is, is fun to look at too. It's not that kind of, uh, that sort of Inland Empire look. I was just sort of worried given that that was the last thing David Lynch made, that perhaps the new Twin Peaks would kind of carry on that tradition in some way. And I was relieved that it didn't. And I, you know, I liked the first episode for what I could understand of it. I I don't know. Maybe it's funny to hear you talk about Twin Peaks, like having not seen a lot of it and to be like, I don't know that I understand it because having, you don't really understand it it if you watch it. it. Yeah. You're not like missing necessarily a lot of context. Okay. But you probably know why there's like like Kyle MacLachlan's walking around with long hair and he's all I guess that's I mean I've read up on what it means but like I when I was watching it with that before I because I actually watched that first episode before I even watched the movie and I was like I I, it's his evil doppelganger because he's stuck in the Black Lodge obviously obviously (laughs) super obvious I will say watching Firewalk with me I do feel like there is even as kind of distancing as his stylized approach and kind of heightened approach can be, Mm -hmm. I do find there's like a real emotional core to this, to having this character, you know, so much of like the, the main arc of Twin Peaks, the show is about discovering the secret life of this dead girl, right? The like dark side of it, all of the aspects of her life that other people didn't know about, like finding, all of these nooks and crannies of her life that she'd kept hidden from other people, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and ultimately finding this, you know, trauma within her household. It is about, uh, a survivor of incest true, or not a survivor, uh, that, that to actually have some, a story be focused on her and to be focused on her kind of intense distress and inability to kind of share what she's going through with other people. I think there is like an emotional core there Mm -hmm. that, uh, 
maybe is even stronger for me a bit through how it's refracted very weirdly through all of these elements. Yeah, I could see that. And at a certain point for me, because I didn't fully understand what was going on, I sort of started watching it as I'm watching um, this young woman sort of having an emotional breakdown, possibly because of her uh, cocaine addiction. You know what I mean? And I think if you just view it through that lens, you're right. I think it, it actually does take on more emotional dimensions. For me, though, the sort of issue is like, I mean, David Lynch, to me, is at his best sort of when he's when you can just sort of let go of not worry so much about the narrative right? Um, and just sort of let it wash over you. And to me, it was like maybe because I didn't have the, the base knowledge, it was like extra hard for me to let go. Whereas it's always kind of hard to do that here. I had extra. T- I'm not saying it was his fault. I'm saying it's, you know, as, as someone who just hadn't didn't have the prereqs, didn't have the 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 watching of the first series it was more difficult to sort of just give myself over to the movie. So I definitely, I would not recommend people watch it as a, like, oh, it's a prequel. I'll watch it first, and then I'll go into the series. I think yeah. that would be the worst thing you could do. I wouldn't recommend it either. I Start with the series. The, series, the series, especially since the series begets, gets, like, uh, for good reason, the second half of this uh, of the second season is considered not particularly good until mm-hmm. you get to this last episode, which is great. Right, but I, I think that the series gets like odder and odder and odder. Yeah, the as pilot is almost there's like basically nothing surreal or strange about it at all. It's like a murder mystery, it's right? A Just soap like a very opera. offbeat, odd one. Yes. yeah. That it, and I think that you should start there definitely, mm-hmm. and then. Watch, yeah, and then watch uh, Firewalk with me, and then get to the Showtime episodes, which are their own world entirely, oh and boy. I think closer to Inland Empire by far than to to the first episodes of Twin Peaks. I'm sure, I'm sure Showtime is just delighted about that. I'm sure there's nothing they would love more than uh, knowing I, they the made 18 is- episodes of. of- <laughs> An Inland Empire-esque I, trip into David thrilled. Lynch's mind. I am thrilled that they did this. Even if this is, this feels in some way like the like height of peak TV, like throwing money at a powerful creator and yeah. being like, show us your vision because I, it just feels like nothing. Where do you go from this. here? No. Everyone's going to come to their senses. Seems to have already started yeah, to come to over. their senses. Enjoy it while it lasts. <laughs> um, well, that is Firewalk with me and it is available for rent. does matter. We're in love. James, you don't know what you're talking about. Quit trying to hold on so tight. I'm gone. Long gone. Like a turkey in the corn. So Laura Palmer is, in some ways, the kind of it's certainly not the first like a uh, dead girl who becomes the center of this story, but she is maybe the like one of the ultimate, if not the ultimate, dead girl. Uh, from that first moment, you see her getting unwrapped from plastic, and this image that becomes like the image of Twin Peaks, along with the sign to the entering the town. Her face is kind of the central image of that show. So we thought we would look at this as a trend because it definitely is one. I think you maybe some one that you see a little more on television than you do in movies, but. It's it's there as well. But shows like The Killing, like Veronica Mars, like Pretty Little Liars, like Desperate Housewives uh, are all shows that have revolved around this dead character who, you know, in some ways is both the center of the story and this absence. Right. Because she's gone. Yes. 
Um, but I think you see it in movies too. I mean, something like Gone Girl is mm-hmm. a basically uh, dealing with the idea of media obsession and like audience obsession with this, right? Like, like somehow uh, a, a mystery is more interesting if it somehow is centered on this beautiful character, mm-hmm. this beautiful woman or girl. Uh, but things like I think Rebecca and Vertigo are also, you know, beautiful dead girl stories. Like Vertigo is. I mean, as much I have engaging. a Hitchcock pick on my list. Uh-huh. I mean, like he's sort of the king. Yeah. yeah, he's one of the kings of the beautiful dead woman trope. Yeah, um, I there are multiple essays about this online. A lot of them have to do with Twin Peaks as a st- like kind of as the peg. But um, mm-hmm. I was looking at one uh, in the L.A. Review of Books by Alice Bullen who wrote. Uh, as such, the dead girl is not a character in the show, but rather the memory of her is, which I thought was interesting as well. When you're like, you never actually see this character. You just see everyone's recollections. Mm-hmm. Um, but Matt, when you, were, when you were thinking of this, you said you had not heard of this trend before or heard of this idea. Not as a sort of a, as a trend or a theme, or I hadn't read any of these pieces that I guess, I mean, probably because I wasn't paying that much attention to Twin Peaks. So I'm, I'm guessing this is part of the discussion about the return of Twin Peaks, which I've been sort of following more at a bemused distance than anything else. So I haven't, I hadn't really read those. And no, I guess I just, you know, it wasn't a... Uh, you know, as soon as you said it, I was like, okay, yeah, I guess I can see it. It's definitely a popular trope or even a crutch of some filmmakers. But I just I just hadn't read about it as a, uh, you know, as as those articles you sent me to read beforehand. I, I hadn't read any of them before, no. Well, I'm part of the problem. Is that what we're trying I to say know. here? I mean, like, I, I, I don't know that I... The, certainly, there are certain... There are critiques that you can make about this idea. Mm-hmm. And yet, there have been... Lots of great films and uh, mm-hmm. and television series, including Top of the Lake, which I think is like very explicitly feminist, you right. know. But That's true. that fall in this category as well. Yep. So I think that there are potential problems in it in terms of like why this is always the type of character who's considered the most interesting victim, right? But I don't think that it's one that can be dismissed broadly by any means. No. I mean, it's something also we do like in real life. You like casting Jean Monnet. That movie is basically about our obsession with, with beautiful, a real beautiful dead little girl. Dead little girl, yeah. It's true. It is a it is a it, it seems to speak to something within us. But it's true that you also don't see a lot of like beautiful dead men. That's not as much of a trope for whatever yeah. reason. The the one that I've seen recently is Riverdale, I think. Mm-hmm. The the Archie the, the Archie. Gritty. Yes, uh, Gritty Archie. It starts with the death a beautiful... of a handsome young oh. high school man. Yeah. Well, that's a nice subversion of this trope. We right? could use some more of that, I have to say. <laughs> I'm up for some more beautiful dead men, I guess. Mm. Just equal opportunity. Beautiful corpses. That. Yeah. Well, while we're here, what's your pick? Your okay. Pick? Well, you mentioned Hitchcock, so let's do that first. Um, I guess, I mean, I think the movie you were going to talk about in a little bit might actually be the patient zero of this idea, but if there's a patient one or 0.1 or whatever it is, that would probably be hit Psycho, I would think. I mean, that's, yeah. that's certainly a movie where so much of it hinges on not only an act of violence, but an act of violence against a woman, like a very beautiful, vulnerable and, woman. Like a famously portrayed one. Yes. One of the most famous scenes in cinema. Yes. Like, and I think in that case, Hitchcock was doing that mostly for shock, not only because of like the violence, which at that time was incredibly graphic for the time, but also like in terms of the nudity was very unusual. 
I mean, when Psycho was made, no movie had ever showed a flushing toilet before. So it was, you can imagine, you have to sort of put yourself in that um, mindset. But I mean, that I can't recommend Psycho. That's like, that's yeah, dumb. No one needs to recommend Psycho. Exactly. So you know it's good. Right. So instead, I'm going to recommend another a Hitchcock movie where he returned to a lot of the same ideas, including the notion of this beautiful corpse. And that is 1972's Frenzy. This is available for rent. It was Hitchcock's second-to-last film. It was the first one he made back in England after many years working in Hollywood. And it was, in a lot of ways, a career summation. He restages and reconsiders a lot of his most popular themes, including the idea of an innocent man wrongfully accused. In the film, there is this serial killer who is strangling women in London with neckties And all of the circumstantial evidence points to this one former Air Force officer who has fallen on hard times. And the movie begins very much like Psycho with these slow pan-in shots suggesting that, you know, like out of all the world, we are randomly choosing this one spot to focus. And as we zoom in, it just so happens that we land on this spot by the banks of a river where a naked woman's body floats ashore wearing nothing but a tie wrapped around her neck. So that really sets the tone. And later, there is a very long and disturbing uh, attack assault scene where we watch the killer murder this woman. It is in some ways similar to the shower scene in Psycho in which you are – I mean you're sort of trapped in this very claustrophobic uh, space and you are forced to watch this repulsive act. And I think if you're a person with feelings and humanity, these sorts of scenes draw out this like – empathy and you like you want to you're sort of repulsed and you want to help but there's nothing you can do and i think that's something that hitchcock loved to play with our instincts towards voyeurism and then you know like how we're drawn to these lurid subjects and topics but then subverting it showing us things we don't want to see watching us squirm making us side with the killer even there's this very famous sequence in frenzy um, where the killer has murdered one of the main female characters in the movie like someone we really like in the movie and it turns out that the killer has a tie pin he likes ties so i guess it makes sense and um the this particular victim managed to grab the pin off of his lapel or tie or whatever right before he kills her and he only realizes it's missing after he's dumped the body in a potato truck and so there's this very long suspenseful hitchcockian sequence where he has to jump in the truck and it's run it's it's driving and he has to try to find the pin he's throwing around potatoes he the the corpse is like falling on him almost like kicking him in the face at one point um the fingers of the hand have like like frozen stiff from rigor mortis. He has to break the fingers to get the pin out. And suddenly, like halfway through the scene, you realize you're like getting nervous about whether this guy's going to be caught. And he's the sadistic, horrible killer. And it's this strange, incredible act of audience manipulation. And it uh, really shows Hitchcock kind of how well he could push viewers' buttons in ways that very few other filmmakers ever could. Um, I, I have a feeling uh, if Frenzy came out today, um, some you know the the fact that there's all these killings, these murders, these women, a lot of there's some nudity, which is unusual for Hitchcock, but the fact that they are so sexual, I think would probably draw some ire. There would be some negative reactions to that. Personally, what I got from Frenzy was that it's, I mean, watching it now, it's like, it's very much to me about the, like, almost like casual misogyny of the entire male gender, because 
all the guys in Frenzy are bad. There's the villain, but the hero of the movie is not a hero. He's innocent of this crime, but he's like, he's a horrible person. He's a sleazeball. He's a deadbeat. It's made, I think, pretty clear that he has hurt women in the past. He probably would do it again under the right circumstances. And the only good guy really in the movie is this police inspector, which is another unusual thing about Hitchcock because he was terrified of the police. But this inspector doesn't even, I mean, like he's, he's, he's a good cop, but he seems to dislike his wife. He hates her cooking. There are some, frankly, very funny scenes where she cooks him these revolting-looking dinners, just absolutely disgusting, which are very, very funny. Some of the funniest scenes of Hitchcock's career. But it's a very interesting movie, I think, just the depiction of the male gender as this is just absolutely terrible. Uh, it is not considered frenzy, not one of the Pantheon Hitchcock movies, but I I like it a lot. And... Um, I hadn't seen it in a long time, and I rewatched it yesterday, and it, I think it holds up really well. It has some of, I think, Hitchcock's very best set pieces, shots, individual shots are incredible, and it has this great, unusual tone. So that's my first pick. Frenzy, available for rent. All right. Well, my first pick is, as you said, uh, I think one of the kind of Patient fundamental, zero. yes, fundamental texts, er, texts of the idea of the beautiful dead girl as this object of obsession and fixation. It is Laura, Otto Preminger's 1944 film, which I believe gave uh, is the namesake for Laura Palmer. Oh, that would make sense. Uh, uh, you know, and is certainly not just uh, the possessor of this this film but also the theme song from the film uh which is very famous and kind of is this recurring motif throughout the score you Mm -hmm. hear it in all of these different ways it's a film about the murder of laura hunt who's played by gene tierney uh who works in advertising and has become this object of obsession for many men at least according to some of the witnesses who are asked about this uh but in particular, there are two in her life who become important. And then there's a third. There is Detective Mark McPherson, played by Dana Andrews, who's assigned to investigate who killed her and who effectively starts to fall in love with her ghost, with the idea of her. Uh, Mark is maybe the least interesting of the trio of men who have been orbiting Laura. The other two are both in their own ways like are kind of parasitic. They're fascinating. There's her fiancé, Shelby Carpenter, played by a young Vincent Price, who is basically a kept man, this like fallen aristocrat who has been living off of uh, Laura's aunt, who's in love with him and has been supporting him. But while meanwhile, he has romanced this younger woman closer to his age and uh, has gotten her to agree to marry him. And then there's Waldo Lidecker, who is played by Clifton Webb, who is this famous acid-tongued newspaper columnist whose fixation on Laura is extremely possessive. It's not necessarily sexual or romantic. Waldo is coded in very 40s fashion to be gay. Mm-hmm. He's got these like kind of dandyish fashion tastes. His wit is so biting uh, and... He, his his relationship with Laura is really based around his desires to kind of shape her, including uh, taking her to get better dressed, getting her hair done, introducing her to important people around the town until, as he puts it, she becomes known as Waldo Lidecker's walking stick and his white carnation. It's not 
uh, the, your kind of standard description of a romantic interest. No. Uh, but these two men both feel possessive over her in certain ways and also kind of like want to own and lean on her a bit. Uh, and what makes this movie so interesting beyond just how beautifully and weirdly uh, moody it is is the idea of Laura as this object on which all of these other people project things you know uh, Shelby projects this kind of this person who will will give him this like uh, life that he wants in the meanwhile he keeps lying to her all the time and cheating on her uh, Waldo kind of sees her as the perfect accessory to him and maybe Beard uh, as much as like the movie is willing to say that as well mm-hmm. And then the detective, in his own way, projects on her. I mean, he falls in love with her portrait. He goes to her apartment and, like, hangs out there. There is a twist in this movie, which I will not reveal. It's hard to... It's it's really more than a twist. It's like a pivotal moment in which you kind of changes everything you thought you knew about what was happening. Uh, but it, it really kind of shakes up the movie in interesting ways because so much of it is about this character as someone who's projected on... Uh, I like this movie a lot. And I think like the oddness of it, it sometimes feels extremely claustrophobic, uh, particularly given the way it starts, like right off into the investigation. Uh, I, I, I think that that just adds to the kind of dreamy, like Freudian qualities of it. It feels... Uh, it feels like sometimes extremely on the nose and sometimes it feels like very difficult to pin down at all. Uh, it's a gorgeous movie. And it is a great one. Uh, and I think really, if you can't really talk about this subject without talking about it. It is Laura, and it is streaming on Netflix. Okay, that's a great pick. My next pick came out last year, kind of quietly. It got some good reviews at film festivals in the fall, but its, it's theatrical release really got almost no traction. I missed it, did not see it until this week when I realized its premise made it perfect for this podcast. It is The Autopsy of Jane Doe from Andre Overdahl, the Norwegian director who previously made Troll Hunter, which is a movie I know we've mentioned, recommended on this podcast before. This, I believe, is his first English-language feature. It is a slow-burning thriller about a father-and-son team of coroners played by Brian Cox and Emil Hirsch. And it works. Somehow they are a believable father and son team on screen. Um, One seemingly ordinary night, a corpse is wheeled into their morgue, and it is a beautiful woman with absolutely flawless features and skin. Uh, Just beautiful, dead woman that fits the the subject matter we are talking about. Um, On initial examination, the coroners find all these strange injuries like shattered wrists and ankles and internal bleeding, but her skin is immaculate and she has no bruises, so it's a mystery. How did she die, and how did this Jane Doe get all these brutal internal wounds while maintaining this outer perfection? And that's the question that the coroners have to solve, and sort of pitching the movie that way... To me, it began to feel almost like a commentary on this trope we're talking about of the beautiful dead woman. And it actually also subverts a lot of the tropes of sort of standard horror movies. And this is a horror movie, if I didn't make that clear yet. You know, because in a regular horror movie, the blood and the guts, you know, come in slashes and splashes and splurts. And here, there's it's, it's a graphic movie. It is, there is an autopsy in this movie. Uh, but everything is very cold and clinical, and it's, you know, it's, 
I guess you could call it shocking, but the way it is shot is not the way a typical horror movie is shot. And sometimes it's almost so graphic, it's almost comical, the way that they're very clinically examining this body and holding the organs and cutting things and... Yeah. Uh, the film also, I think, uh, I, th- I thought was kind of interesting in the way it subverts the gender dynamics in most slasher movies, where usually you have these beautiful uh, and typically sexually active women who are menaced by angry men with knives. Here, the men with the knives are the heroes performing an autopsy, and they're trying to find out who killed this woman, but there is more to this body than initially meets the eye. I'm not going to spoil it. Like, you know, we're not going to spoil Laura. We're not going to spoil this one either. Um, on the one hand, I actually kind of liked the, the, the sort of, it's not really a twist. It's sort of a gradual way that this movie develops because again, the, the, this notion of this gorgeous corpse is such a cliche um, that I think the movie almost uses it as a metaphor, the fact that she has all this horrible internal damage and is beautiful outside. It almost is about, you know, it's a it's the way that I think that, you know, people can sort of carry around trauma. They may look fine from the outside, but inside they are, something has damaged them. And there is, in fact, a subplot in the movie about Brian Cox's character and how his wife has recently died and he's grieving over it and he's trying to continue with his job and get on with his life, but it's clearly um, he's having a hard time with it. On the other hand, I thought some of the surprises didn't work. I thought that the best scenes in the movie were just when they were performing a very sort of matter of fact autopsy and like kind of being like, I guess like, you know, detectives or whatever, you know, acting like coroners would, um, you know, I guess I've never watched like CSI or whatever. So I just found that those scenes really fun and interesting. And then things do take a turn towards the supernatural. And I, I think that's in some ways a personal preference. I often find with these like low budget indie horror movies, I'm always more interested in like the setups when people are just being their normal, interesting selves um, that I am when things get crazy and surreal. Um, but that's fine. I think that what the way, you know, how it's made very well, it, it does what it does very well. And I suppose if I just want to watch a, uh, something about the ordinary lives of corners, I should watch Six Feet Under or something. I don't know. Anyway, I didn't love the ending, but I thought the first 40 minutes or so, and it's a short movie, it's like 90 minutes total. I thought it was almost perfect. Very, very, very solid B movie throwback. And uh, overall, the good definitely outweighs the bad. And again, I think it does a lot of interesting things with this beautiful dead woman trope. I mean, it seems at first that it's going to be, you know, something very typical for that idea uh, that this young woman is just this prop, essentially, to to motivate this depressed old guy or maybe to serve as this mystery. But even while she is uh, laying there dead in their morgue, she has a story to tell and the more she is uh, denied the chance to tell it, the worse things get for these men. And I think that there is something very interesting about the ending as well, which I will not spoil within this idea. So, uh, yeah, this was a nice surprise for me. I think it's worth checking out. It is The Autopsy of Jane Doe, available for rent. Yeah, I've heard people fall wildly on other either side of oh, that yeah? movie in terms of, which is always interesting to me when something really is divisive mm-hmm. like that. So. I, I thought it was great. I loved the beginning. I loved Brian Cox. And I, Neil Hirsch is really good, too. 
and it's it's one of those movies where it's it's it seems very realistic and then by the end it's it's kind of crazy and silly and over the top and you know that's just that stuff again it might be personal preference but those scenes didn't work nearly as well for me as as the uh, the first like 40 minutes did all right. Well, for my second film, I went with a newer one as well. Uh, this is from 2014. It is a film called The World of Kanako. It's available on Hulu and on Tubi TV now. Uh, it's directed by Tetsuya Nakashima, who did Kamikaze Girls, which I know we've both mm-hmm. seen, did Confessions, and did Memories of Matsuko, which is a film I love and is sort of a reverse beautiful dead girl movie, since it's about... Uh, an older woman like living by herself who's a hoarder who dies and whose nephew starts digging up her past and gets all of these flashbacks into her past life, this like full life she led. Um, the world of Conoco, I will say, is I will, I, giving this a kind of mixed recommendation. It is okay. stylistically very, it's a bravura film in terms of just it's it's filmmaking and I think it's uh, structure, which is this very non-linear structure. It is also just like gleefully and punishingly nihilistic. Ooh. It goes to some extremely dark ends. If you've ever watched like kind of dark high school movies about Japan, you might have a sense of some of the things this includes, which, okay. you know, bullying, um, forced prostitution, uh, suicide. Uh, it's funny how many kind of dark films about Japan make high school in Japan look like a horror beyond by imagining. But uh, the world of Kanako is, it's a film that has a kind of classic missing and or dead girl structure. Uh, It stars Koji Yakusho, who's, who plays a detective named Akihiro, uh, who was called upon by his ex-wife to find their missing teenage daughter, Kanako. It's played by Nana Komatsu. Uh, And as it turns out, as it always turns out, there's more to her life than her parents knew about. But then, uh, as much as this all sounds familiar, this like dis, you know, this cop trying to redeem himself by finding his young daughter, everything just starts to go wrong about this formula in ways that I, I really found refreshing. First of all, there's the fact that Akihiro himself is so unreliable and, as the film goes on, increasingly awful as a main character. He pops pills, he drinks, he sexually assaults a woman whose idyllic home life he kind of envies and resents. We learn more and more about the fact that he is not just a detective. He's like a fa- disgraced cop who possibly has uh, mental issues. He resents his ex-wife who left him he hasn't seen his daughter for years she's you know by the time she gets called on here she's like a stranger to him uh and uh the film follows him and then for a while it also follows in parallel this classmate of Kanako's who falls in love with her he's bullied terribly he sees this kind of sadness in her in the way she mourns another classmate who committed suicide and she seems this kind of idealized character as he says at one point the only beautiful thing in my life uh and I think one of the most satisfying things that the world of Kanako does is to reveal not that far into the movie that Kanako is not a nice girl, mm. that she is, in fact, basically a sociopath. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that the more the film digs into her life, the more that it is clear that she is a terrifying and destructive figure. And the more that the search for her from her father starts to seem more like this act of self-loathing. <laughs> 
um, and, and, and like maybe attempt, you're not sure should he find his daughter, what the main character will do to her. Uh, since he, it turns out, is abusive himself. This is an incredibly dark movie, but I think it is also a kind of great F you to the genre, uh, this genre in general, with the idea of this, you know, young woman snuffed out before her time or, uh, you know, with this tragedy in her life that she couldn't get around. That The idea that this character is just so frightening and so like destructive is uh, kind of a relief. It is a nice turnaround of, of this formula. And uh, for all that, I think that this movie is a little punishing. I think that the stylishness of it makes it a little exhilarating as well, that it just feels like this big ride to hell uh, in which so many people are psychopaths or disturbed, or hit this point and just can't break and can't go back to normal life in this movie. Uh, it's something very fascinating about that. So that is The World of Kanako. It is on Hulu, and it is on Tubi TV. It's getting dark, too dark to see. to pay you damages in the amount of $75,000 for your daughter's death, $85,000 for your wife's. I look at this photo. I would like for someone to say that they're sorry for killing my family. In order to guarantee your safety. All right, very quickly before we talk about some new movies, we had a contest, as you may recall, on our last episode. Uh, we were giving away three copies of the new Arnold Schwarzenegger masterpiece, Aftermath. Uh, which is available on Blu-ray, DVD, and on demand on June 6th. Uh, you had to um, share the post for this episode, or I guess the previous episode of the podcast on Facebook. And from all the people who did that, we just picked a couple of random winners, and we will contact these winners to get their addresses. But the winners were Maggie, Mark Y, and Robert T. So congratulations. We will be reaching out to get your uh, addresses so you can get a copy of the very good, and I mean that sincerely, Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, uh, Aftermath on Blu-ray. Enjoy it. And come join me in the Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, is making very good movies right now camp. That's what I'm hoping for. All right, on to movies that Arnold Schwarzenegger is not in. We're going to talk about some new releases. Unfortunately, he would have been great in Wonder Woman. I think. As Wonder Woman? As Wonder Woman. Ah, the warrior. Ah, Chris Pine. Beautiful. What did you think of Wonder Woman? Not enough Arnold Schwarzenegger. Okay, beyond that. It's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a pretty solid movie. It's a solid movie. It's a it's a it's a it's a good blockbuster. It gives you what you want. I didn't love the ending. No, the ending I think we could is probably the everyone weakest part. Agree, agree is the weakest it, part. Uh it almost seems like it's from a different movie. Um, I yes. don't know if it was, you know, it was something that they made in the editing room or in reshoots or whatever. But the movie, I think it is very cohesive and it fits together very nicely. And then all of a sudden, and it's not too, you know, there's some action scenes, but it's not really about that so much. And then out of nowhere, all of a sudden there's this like 
and, and actually it's a lot of it is it's sunny and bright it's not like the other dc movies and then out of nowhere it's like it's let's big... take a big ugly cgi monster guy let's have it this big angry fight scene set at night and let's have weird energy laser powers shooting everywhere yes. and big explosions yes and it's 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 pretty underwhelming. It's I felt v- very anticlimactic. It is, especially when the film's like kind of biggest and best action set piece is this one in the middle. The one uh, in the trenches. Like, yes. Oh yeah. It's you awesome. know, and it's awesome and it's great and it feels so kind of together with the rest of the tone of the movie. And it's weirdly right. moving as well. Yes. I think like when you first see Wonder Woman step out onto a battlefield, yeah. it is kind of wonder. It's wonderful. Uh, it's kind of great. And it's funny that like the, the climactic battle is so underwhelming yes. comparatively. Yeah. The, the one you're referring to that's so great is the scene where she kind of winds up in the middle of world war one and she kind of rallies these troops who have been sort of beaten down by the brutality of this war and inspires them. And that's sort of like, that's what you want these characters to do for us is like inspire us and be these beautiful role models. And like, it's like a literal version of that on screen. And it's also really cool. There's some great like shots and and sequences in that where she's fighting. It's awesome. It's great. And you know, in that other sequence that we're referring to at the end there's like no one around no there's nobody else is really i think maybe because they got uh gun shy in a sense because of all the blowback from their previous movies there's like no civilians around whatsoever but even there's no people around there's like no stakes to it at all right. it's just it's well, just cgi monster it's fight. also i mean at that point it is a battle for like like should wonder woman be invested in humanity basically right. at that part she's making this kind of godlike decision and it is less interesting than when she tries to bring her like very pure but also very naive sense of of justice to this incredibly complicated battle. Right. I like, I mean, so much of the movie that's like so much of what's interesting in the movie is about what happens when this very untested sort of idealism hits the reality of war. Right. Uh, and I think that the movie does a good job with that. It does. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And Gal Gadot or. It's good, the, it's good, good dot. Yes, yes, I'm trying. Yes, not it's, French. She's yeah. Israeli. Yes, I'm trying to. I've learned. It's got to be pronounced. I'm trying to pronounce it right. I mean, I thought she was the best part of Batman versus Superman. And I think she's great here. She's wonderful as this character. She has a real presence. Um, and yeah, as you said, she's her character in this movie. This is a you know, it's set in World War One, and it takes place way before the events of Batman versus Superman. So she's very idealistic. It's her first time in the outside world, leaving her home of Themyscira, land of the Amazons, and uh, all those scenes are great. And and she really, I think, pulls off the, the sort of naive, innocent, wide-eyed side of Wonder Woman. And also in those scenes where she's fighting, she is very convincingly tough. She's cool. She's a badass. It's great. She yeah. has it all. She's got, and, and she's great with Chris Pine, who I think is increasingly one of my favorite actors yes. in these kind of big he movies. He is in this role also. He's very generous in terms of understanding he is not there not to the be star. the main character nope he is like sometimes he gets shown up a lot he's the buffoon yes. sometimes. sometimes he's uh, the comic relief yes and i enjoyed how like he's also in at times he's like the piece of meat that's supposed to be ogled piece of meat. Yeah, like you know he's is, he's yes. on display physically way more than <laughs> than uh, Gal Gadot is yes. in this movie in a way that I found very charming. Yes, and he is so game for it. Oh, totally. You know? And I, I think that is part of what makes that work so well is that there's a sense of resentment coming from being made to play second fiddle, mm-hmm. you know, which he is. He's not the superhero. No, he seems very comfortable in the role. It is. Not, I don't think, I think there are some actors who would have felt threatened or just tried to steal scenes from her or to upstage her. 
and he never does it. Um, I thought he was great. He has a bunch. It's a period movie. He has a lot of scenes where he's wearing a fedora. I was like, oh, you're going to be the next Indiana Jones, and I'm 100% fine with that. You were a great Captain Kirk. You can just be all my favorite characters. It's fine, Chris Pine. You're wonderful. Um, yeah, I, I think other than that, uh, you know, underwhelming finale, I found and, it. And the framing story, which is just pointless, pointless, but, but we have to have it. I Look, know. I will take a framing story because there's, other than that, there's really not any like Easter eggs. Yeah. Like there's not a lot of like kind of st- let's stop. At least there's no stopping the movie to watch like a YouTube video. Know. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, so I will, yeah. I will accept it. I'll allow it. it it's is, fine. Yes, it is shockingly different from Batman v Superman whatever you know just in terms of its tone its sense of humor Mm -hmm. and also its sense of kind of goodness you know like it is still very concerned with goodness yes in a way that is it feels very old-fashioned and it does feel that's I think that's the thing it feels like a throwback to this very this earlier conception of these characters and what these characters are meant to do and to be and yeah it's like the the you know if you enjoy those other DC movies fine more power to you but like they really are very sullen and dour and like even Superman, freaking Superman in those Superman movies, he like he's miserable. He seems like it's a burden to be Superman. And maybe it is, and that's a viable take on it. But that's not what this movie is about. And I found this uh pretty refreshing right. because of that. I don't think it reinvents anything with regard to like, you know, the boundaries of the superhero movie. No, definitely but not. it has a sense of joy that I really yes. appreciated. Yes. Imagine that. A movie about people with magic powers that makes you feel good. Yes. What a novel concept. All right, and very briefly. Briefly, we have yes. one other movie that's coming out this Friday, which I'm dying to see. I have not seen yet. I'm really looking forward to it. it. Is It Comes at Night. This is the new film from Trey Edward Schultz, who made Cretia, which was one of my favorite movies, I guess, of last year. Um, and this is uh, his first bigger movies. I'm guessing it's still not a gigantic movie, but it has Joel Edgerton and Carmen Ajogo and Riley Keogh. So it has a bigger cast. It's a horror movie from what I gather from the trailers. You've seen it, Allison. I have seen it. Is, is it going to disappoint me or am I going to be happy because I love Cresha? I was a little disappointed by this. Aww. Yeah, I loved Cresha. It yeah. was one of my favorite movies of last year. I yeah. think it is, it is an amazing kind of claustrophobic family drama as horror movie. And I thought I was so impressed by Trey Edward Schultz. And It Comes at Night is a beautifully directed movie that Mm -hmm. has just, sometimes it just has shots that really freak you out. Mm -hmm. You know, like the camera tracking down the hallway towards this red door Mm -hmm. is one of the scariest things I've ever seen. Um, But I don't think that it really pulls it together in terms of like the mythology it tries to spin out. And in terms of just, uh, in terms of, it's withholding of information. It is, it mostly takes place at this one house in this scenario in which clearly something very bad has happened to the world. And right. this family has holed up in their house and has a whole process in place. Mm-hmm. And, and then new characters come around. But I just, I, it, it ha- gave me that feeling and that feeling that I really, that never is something I like, which is when it feels like someone is sort of above the feels a little above the genre they're playing in 
And I felt that way a bit. Like, mm. it was very tasteful mm. about its approach to horror and to kind of uh, withholding information until to, to a point where I felt frustrated. Huh. It does have a great cast. Joel Edgerton, yeah. Christopher Abbott, Carmen DiGiogo, uh Riley Keough with very hip, Kelvin Harrison Jr., who I'd never seen him. I don't, I don't think I'd seen him in anything before. Not that I'd, like, really registered. And he's very good. And I will say this. It does have, like some like basic shots that it reuses again and again that are so frightening, Mm -hmm. including when the characters take their guns, which they've strapped a flashlight onto into the woods and try and look in the woods, which is like so little visual that you can get from that. It's so frightening. And then one of the characters has nightmares and they are by far the most frightening part of the film. (laughs) They reminded me of take shelter and the bad dreams and take shelter. Oh like they boy. have that kind of apocalyptic, mm. frightening quality. Um, so yeah, I was a little disappointed by it. I think I think there's still plenty to like in it, mm. in particular the filmmaking. But I think ultimately it, it wasn't uh, a great success for me. <sighs> All right. Well, Sorry to now say. Now that you've taken my dreams and thrown them on the ground and trampled on them. And then shot them and with then my sh- gun. With shot a them with your gun and a flashlight attached to it. Yep. Let's move on to Behind the Eight Ball, where we wrap up the show with some new recommendations that have just been added to streaming, some listener recommendations that you guys have sent to us at our email address, svu at filmspottingsvu.com. And we also give you one film chosen blindly by number from our My Lists. Allison, you want me to go first? Yeah, why don't you go first, Matt? Okay, first up, I guess you should have said. It's okay. Yeah. You want me to? Okay. All right, well, give me three new releases. Okay, first up, I have a pair of Stanley Kubrick movies that are on a pair of streaming services. Full Metal Jacket is now on Netflix, and Eyes Wide Shut is on Hulu. Full Metal Jacket from 1987 is Kubrick's Vietnam War film. It's generally remembered and praised for its first half, where a bunch of recruits are tortured by a drill sergeant played by R. Lee Ermey, while the second part, which is actually set in Vietnam, generally gets lower marks. Uh, I had never seen Full Metal Jacket maybe until, I don't know, 10 years ago. And when I finally watched it, I thought the second half was dynamite. I thought it was kind of underrated. So that's on Netflix. On Hulu is Eyes Wide Shut, Kubrick's final film, starring a very good Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman as a married couple on the rocks. The movie famously took over a year to shoot with the uh, meticulous Kubrick even more attentive to details than usual. And uh, the results are dreamlike and strange and sad and great. And actually, I now that I'm thinking about it, there might be a beautiful dead woman in that movie. I guess that could have been a, a pick this week, actually. Mm. Uh, so that's Eyes Wide Shut on Hulu. And finally, here is one that I am in the process of watching myself. It is Long Strange Trip, a nearly four-hour film about the Grateful Dead, which is now streaming on Amazon. Uh, This played at film festivals as one enormous movie, but Amazon has it divided into episodes, which actually might make people more uh, prone to watch it. It's kind of a smart way to do it. Uh, It also suggests that when people say binge watch, what they really mean is a really long movie. Uh, I started the first episode a couple of nights ago. I liked it, and I will say I'm not the biggest Grateful Dead fan in the world, but I thought the filmmaking was really good, uh, as well put together. The movie is directed by Amir Barlev, who made the documentaries Happy Valley, The Tillman Story, and My Kid Could Paint That, which is a, a good documentary as well. So that's The Long Strange Trip on Amazon Prime. 
Okay, give me two listener recommendations. All right, our first comes from Taylor in Evanston, who says, I would like to use this platform to let you know that The Prince of Egypt is on Netflix. It's a movie I saw in theaters when I was eight and didn't connect with at the time and was puzzled by many of my peers' continued affection for it over the years. However, recent circumstances led me to watch it again via Netflix, and goodness, was I wrong about it. It retells the biblical story of Moses dynamically, yet respectfully, with a very Rafe Finesy, Rafe Fines voice performance as Ramses. But the real distinguishing factor is the absolutely exquisite animation. While two years later, Titan AE would turn me off to hand-drawn CGI hybrids, that format works super well here. Even as someone who adores the How to Train Your Dragon movies, it's now clear that DreamWorks animation w- uh, had not has not hit a creative high like The Prince of Egypt since. Wow. Uh, so that is a recommendation for The Prince of Egypt on Netflix from Taylor and Evanson. Thank you, Taylor. I don't think I've seen The Prince of Egypt since it was in theaters either, and I was a lot older than eight years old, quite frankly, but let's not talk about that. Anyway, uh, our next recommendation here comes from Jeremy in Birmingham, who says, I'd love to recommend the documentary Glow, the story of the gorgeous ladies of wrestling, which is now streaming on Netflix. Much ado has been made about Genji Cohen's upcoming original Netflix series based on the same subject, but I don't believe enough attention has been paid to this excellent 2012 documentary, which Cohen credited for inspiring the idea for her series. Those familiar with the short-lived wrestling league of the late 80s and early 90s will love this trip down memory lane, and those like myself who weren't familiar with Glow will wish they could have experienced it in its heyday. Either way, it's a great preview for what's to come this summer. That's Glow, the Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling, available on uh, Netflix. That recommendation from Jeremy in Birmingham. And I will second that one, the Glow, the Story of the Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling. It is a fun documentary. Um, I I vaguely remember Glow from when I was a kid, but it wasn't something I followed. But uh, the documentary is a lot of fun, and I am really excited for that Netflix show. Uh, the trailer is out. It looks great. Uh, I think that show could be could be a lot of fun, uh, and the subject speaks to me as well. I'm I'm excited about that uh, that one. So hopefully that's great. And yeah, if you haven't seen Glow, if you want to prep for the new series, watch that documentary. Okay, how about one from your my list? You gave me number sixteen. Number sixteen on my 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 list right now is Cars Tunes: Colon Mater's Tall Tales. <laughs> Tow Truck Mater, star of Pixar's hit Cars, envisions himself in all matter of outrageous scenarios in this anthology of animated tales. And uh, I put this on my my list. <laughs> why are you laughing at me? I don't know why. Why would I be laughing? Um, I just love the cars, I guess. <laughs> There's no reason. No, I was, I was prepping. I did a, a month or so ago. I did a, I, I visited um, Pixar, which was really cool, and interviewed the filmmakers of Cars Three, which is coming out, uh, I guess this month. And um, I rewatched Cars and Cars Two, and I actually did not get around to watching Cars Tunes Mater Tall Mater's Tall Tales, but I did put it on my my list at the time, thinking. I might watch this, and I did not, and I probably should just delete it because <laughs> you there's, at, this point, at this point, it's just definitely not happening. Yeah. All right. Allison, are you ready to uh, begin here with your picks? I'm ready. All right. Let's start with three new releases. Okay. New to Netflix is Headshots. 
a new film featuring Iko Uwais from The Raid, mm-hmm. uh, directed I'm adding by, this as you speak. Yeah, directed Keep by a pair of Indonesian filmmakers known as the Mo Brothers, and it sounds like The Raid meets the Born Identity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Uwais plays an amnesiac who Love is nursed it. back to health, mm-hmm. uh, and his past, of course, his dark past, comes back to haunt. Does it him. involve him kicking a lot of people? I would imagine it involves a yes. lot of kicking and punching. <laughs> Yes. So, right. that, so it's number one on my my list now. It is new to Netflix. Also new to Netflix is Staying Vertical, the new film from Alain Giraudier, who did Strangers by the Lake, a the acclaimed kind of erotic thriller uh, from the other year. This is not what I would call an erotic thriller, though it has some very striking and sometimes very odd kind of surprising moments of eroticism. But it is about a character who is a struggling screenwriter who finds himself driving off into the countryside, attempting to seduce a teenager, having an affair with a shepherdess, and then ending up in kind of a stranger and more surreal situations, including, at one point, fatherhood. It's very difficult to describe. It is a film that I'm not, I do not love, but it, its outrageousness and its boldness is something that I really appreciate. Uh, it was at Cannes last year. That is Staying Vertical, and that is on Netflix. And finally, new to Amazon, four of the five films that Kinji Fukasuku uh, directed in the Battles Without Honor and Humanity series, which is a, a series of Yakuza films mm-hmm. in the 70s. Four of those are now streaming on Amazon. Uh, so if that's some, uh, you know, there are more than those four, but if you've ever been curious about this series, which has got some like real fans and, uh, to the point where Quentin Tarantino borrowed theme music from this, I believe, uh, it is now available for you to check out on Amazon. So uh, I've never seen these and I've very, been very interested in sampling them. So I'm looking forward to checking them out there. Okay, how about two listener recommendations? First up, we have one from Jason in Salt Lake City who writes, I can't count the number of underseen and obscure gems that have been brought to my attention because of the podcast, so it only seems fair that I throw another underseen gem into the suggestion box. Sweet and Vicious, or Sweet Slash Vicious, just wrapped up its first 10-episode season on MTV, and it is ripe for a cult following and deserving of mainstream exposure. It tells the story of two college girls who turn vigilante to exact vengeance on campus sex offenders. If the premise alone doesn't hook you, it also definitely balances action, comedy, soap opera, and some extremely topical subject matter. It's a kind of show that gets you binge watching and then leaves you wanting to go out and join the marches for women's rights. On top of that, it features phenomenal performances by Eliza Bennett, uh, and t- Taylor Dearden, who is Brian Cranston's daughter. I don't know if it's coming back for a second season. Uh, Jason, since you sent this, it has been canceled, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, but bum, bum, uh, as you said, the first is pretty perfect as is, and it's available for rent on Amazon. Love the show, and thanks for the top-notch work. Thank you for that, Jason. I Some of my coworkers adored this and were really heartbroken when it didn't get picked up, but... It's good to know that the first season stands like stands alone pretty well. That's one that I keep meaning to check out. And we have a recommendation from Angela from Galliano Island, who specified uh, this is a southern Gulf island between Vancouver and Vancouver Island in the Georgia Strait. 
Thank you, uh, Angela. I actually w- like actually literally looked it up after you wrote that. Angela writes, I'm a little over halfway through Creepy by Kiyoshi Kurosawa, who made Pulse and Cure. I didn't see either of those, except just enough of Pulse to get too creeped out to finish watching it. <laughs> uh, I think I'll make it through this one and have to stop reporting. Have to, had to stop to report how wonderfully creepy it really is. It's horror at its over-the-top and convoluted mystery best. Oh, it's weird, but wonderful. Hope I can still say this when it's over. Um, and that is available for rent. And I would also recommend that, um, you know, Kurosawa is best known for his work in the kind of like J-horror heyday. But this was a good kind of comeback for him. He's been making some interesting films recently. Um, so I would recommend that as well. Creepy. Available for rent. Okay. And how about one film chosen by the... My list. You gave me number four. It is... My Left Foot, mm. which I've never seen. Mm, I've never seen it either. Yeah, it's the 89 um, Jim Sheridan film starring Daniel Day-Lewis. Got Daniel Day-Lewis, you know, all of the attention in the world, mm-hmm. playing Christy Brown, uh, an Irishman who became a writer and painter despite being born with cerebral palsy. That left him only able to control his left foot. So... Hopefully I get around to seeing that. I was happy to see it turn up on Netflix and added it to my my list. Okay. All right. Let's talk about our listener's choice options for our next episode. Three choices here. I think it's an interesting batch. I'm not really sure what's going to win this time. We will see. Allison, you have the first pick. What is it? I do. It is a Netflix original. War Machine. Oh, nice. They made a movie of the, the Marvel. This is part of their Marvel thing. They made a movie now with... Uh, um, which, the thing is, like, that's not even a funny joke because it seems entirely plausible that that could I, I will. Oh. <laughs> I'll just sit over here quietly then. Um, no, this would be uh, uh, based on the book The Operators by the late journalist Michael Hastings oh. about uh, the Afghanistan war with Brad Pitt as a thinly fictionalized version of uh, Stanley McChrystal, General Stanley McChrystal, uh, directed by David Michaud, who did Animal Kingdom mm-hmm. and The Rover. Mm-hmm. Also stars Anthony Michael Hall, Tover Grace, Tilda Swinton. When does it not star Tilda Swinton, I ask you? And Ben Kingsley. Uh, one of the several more higher profile Netflix originals uh, in terms of movies recently. They've mm-hmm. been putting money into films, and yes. this one did not go to a big festival, but no. uh, Okja, which is another upcoming one that also features Tilda Swinton, did. It was at Cannes. Mm-hmm. So uh, it might be interesting to just take a look at what this first kind of like... The state of Netflix movies. Yes, uh, this one in particular... They're all great. Yes. They've all been masterpieces. <laughs> Everyone. This one in particular is like, it seems to have been invested in specifically to win awards. And I don't think this one will win awards, right. but to kind of look at the qualities it that they certainly saw. certainly has, I mean, when you have Brad Pitt as the star of your movie, yeah. you are... You are making a statement. You are making a statement. Yes. Absolutely. And, uh, if I didn't mention it, this is a, it's a satirical film. It is, uh, and Brad Pitt does something... Worth discussing. Okay, you've seen, it sounds like you've I seen, have it. seen it. I have not yes. watched it yet. Yes, I think there's a lot to talk about in it. Okay, great. So that is War Machine. That, that is, is your first one. option. It is available on Netflix. Option two, I already mentioned, it is Long Strange Trip, the four hour, I guess, four, I'm assuming four part. I didn't watch, I've only watched 
the first part. So, but uh, it's almost four hours. Amir Barlev's documentary about the Grateful Dead, and uh, executive produced by Martin, Martin Scorsese. And I think here it would be interesting to talk about. Uh, you know, I touched on it already. Just the idea that this movie is being shown basically like a television show on streaming is sort of interesting that they broke it up into parts. And so, I don't know, I feel like we could, I don't know what the theme would be, but that just is uh, very interesting to me. The idea that um, the the slippage between film and television getting even smaller or the way that something can mutate from one to the other, I think is pretty interesting. And I've heard great things about this documentary. You know, I, I have... Uh, friends who are not huge Grateful Dead fans who have who've seen the whole thing and said it's terrific, it's outstanding. So, um, yeah, that's option number two, Long Strange Trip, which is available now on Amazon Prime. All right, and option number three, we had War Machine, yes. and then we have War Then we had on... Anti-War, the ultimate anti-war band. Mm, and then we have War on Everyone. I love it. Yes. Uh, this is on Netflix as well. 2016 black comedy buddy cop film written and directed by John Michael McDonough, who did The Guard and Cavalry. Both great films. Mm-hmm. Uh, Good Cavalry, director. Yeah, in particular, I thought was kind of remarkable. Uh, this one not gotten as much attention or acclaim, nope. but he is certainly a really interesting writer and director. And this has two interesting stars, Alexander Skarsgård and Michael Pena. Yes, I like that team up a yes. lot. And it is set in, uh, this is funny for Alexander Skarsgård for some reason, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Yep, that is funny. Yes, where they play corrupt Albu- Albuquerque cops. <laughs> uh, and, you know... I there I just I cannot imagine not enjoying at least part of this movie. I agree. I'm I want to see it. I I have it on my my list already myself, and uh, would be very happy to have an excuse to watch it. Otherwise, I have to find time to watch it. All right. Well, give Matt time to watch something. Yeah. Uh, that is on Netflix as well. Warn everyone. Your third choice. Okay. So, which movie or movie-ish TV series thing should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? Send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com or just enter in the poll, man, on the right-hand side of the page. I guess now it's more towards the bottom. We've redesigned our website, but it's at filmspottingsvu.com. That's where you'll find the poll and where you must vote by Monday, June 12th at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu. You will then have all that week to watch the film and or TV film thing, whatever it is, and then join us for our conversation on our next episode, which should be out on or around Tuesday, June 20th. Filmspottingsvu.com, newly redesigned, is also where you can find our show archive. Not all of it, not like the back years, but still recent episodes as well as a list of direct links to everything we discuss on the show uh the film spotting svu remix theme song is by vince vandal you can find more of vince's work at vincevandal.bandcamp.com and we will be back in two weeks with more recommendations and the review you pick in the meantime, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Allison Wilmore, and Matt is at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at Filmspotting SVU or like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Filmspotting SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each listener's choice poll and where we share more streaming suggestions all over multiple platforms, tirelessly searching. For Filmspotting SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening.